Welcome, comrades, to our maiden voyage to discover hope, real hope, beyond the illusions handed down to us by previous generations that greed is good and war is inevitable because there will just never be enough to go around. As George Carlin said, it's all bullshit, folks, and it's bad for you. I'm your host, Neon Felicity, and I'm here to tell you that we can have a positive future. With an evolutionary perspective, we can be rationally optimistic about the future of civilization. Despite the cynical machinations of the propaganda machine, technology is evolving to a place where we will no longer be held captive by the need to work a bullshit job to, to meet our basic needs. And future generations will undoubtedly look upon our time with a similar indignation to how we judge our history of slavery and feudal theocracy. What is left for us to do as individual thinkers without the power to solve the problems of the world on our own? As many have said, to change the world, we must first get our own minds right. We must break free from the obsolete dogmas and false assumptions about the way things have to be. The future is going to be radically different from the past, whether we want it to be or not. What is left to us is to shape it by unchaining ourselves from fear, and to shift into compassion, and treat every other person we meet as another version of ourselves. There is much wisdom that we have forgotten that we must recover, and there is much foolishness that we must unlearn. It takes fortitude as well as foresight to see what's ahead for our species and no person can see the whole picture. The truth is always a mosaic, so we'll all benefit from hearing as many futuristic perspectives as possible. The warnings of a dystopian future are all around us, in films, in, in the news, in our worrying minds. We need to try harder to seek out reasons to believe it can be different. We can't escape this tribulation, and utopian futurist philosophy is one step towards shifting the paradigm. We are in uncharted territory in the 21st century. The old answers no longer serve us as a society. This podcast is a speculative attempt to sketch a roadmap out of this mess, with a wide range of perspectives on what we need to focus on to manifest a better world for all of us on this planet. So to launch this ambitious project, I introduce you to our first guest, Scott Mills. He's a transhumanist activist and social scientist, a geopolitical and technological analyst, a non-monogamy communication and life coach, a cryptocurrency expert, and an all-around progressive futurist think tank. We met at Luminosity Gathering in Canada in 2017. We were both giving talks in the metaphysics and art space, and I was very impressed by his energy and his ability to apply profound insights from neuroscience and psychology to reinvent human social relations, to embody a philosophy of radical love and radical openness. In the conversation you're about to hear, we discussed the path through civilizational despair to becoming a utopian optimist. Along the way, we discussed the conspiracy research rabbit hole and how the realization that the impending wave of automation will naturally transform our world can give us real hope for an emancipatory future, because all the propaganda by the ruling class will ultimately fail in the face of this radical technological evolution we're witnessing. We explore the demographic paradigm shift implied by the approaching expiration of the baby boomer generation and the rise of millennials as the biggest voting block in history. We're eager to be done with this terrible economic system that keeps half the population in poverty and the other half involved in unethical and extractive industries like oil and gas. Our generation wants to tax the rich and get moving ASAP on a Green New Deal. We know the baby boomers wrecked our planet, so we're just fighting to make them get out of our way so we can fix it. That is the struggle we're engaged in. We will inherit this planet from them, whatever is left of it. Scott and I discussed the relationship between transhumanism, religion, and capitalism, and how science is approaching discovery of the real elixir of life, which terrifies religious people because it will make us realize that this life is the gift we must cherish. A realization that cannot come at a better time because we are also approaching the end of human employment. Another development that makes the afterlife obsolete, because we will actually be able to do what we want here on Earth, and without having to sell all of our time to a capitalist to pay the rent. 
We talk about what it means to be woke, what it means to stand in solidarity with the victims of oppression, and why it takes compassion and patience to change hearts and minds. Most people are naturally good, but many have brain damage from an authoritarian upbringing or a materially deprived situation. Many folks in our society operate from a place of fear, which prevents them from seeing the value in every person on earth. It doesn't make them bad people, but fear is often manufactured by cynical, powerful men who seek to keep humanity trapped in the old paradigm. Given that technological evolution is proceeding with a predictable trajectory, the most reasonable response is to do our best to spread love as far and wide as possible. If the old world was based on fear, the new world will be based on love. Fear is natural in scarcity, so the abundance of the future will likewise naturally instigate love. Abundance is both a material condition and a critical mindset, which are mutually reinforcing. The primary purpose of this podcast will be to illuminate the abundance mindset so as to help manifest abundance as a material condition. I hope you find Scott's utopian perspective helpful in that regard. So thanks for joining us on this map-making endeavor to envision a path towards a world worth living in. We are alive. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, hello, Scott. Uh, welcome to the, the inaugural episode of Utopian Cartography. So I guess I wanted to start off by basically asking you about your journey to become an optimist have you always been an optimist about the future or have you did you go through a period of you know thinking we were all fucked and humanity would self-implode because i that's the phase i went through that to get to utopianism in the end i imagine that's a pretty common phase uh (laughs) so yeah i definitely went through that i mean uh first uh you know i started working a lot less and I've always been into research. I've really been into like uh, medical technologies and uh, I've been a transhumanist for quite some time, reading right. into like age reversal and I took genetics and, uh, and uh, molecular biology at MIT because I figured, hey, if the future goes south, I would want to be able to 3D print my own lab with the ubiquity of 3D printing technology and then I could do my own experience and give age reversal to all of my friends by adding telomerase genes and all this stuff. So I was always like a big nerd. And I'm autistic and have an eidetic memory, so like I'm just an information sponge. And Wait, so, what's the eidetic memory? Eidetic memory? Uh, that's like uh, anything that I experience is permanent, and I can relive it. So right. like photographic memory type stuff. Right. Um, so like research for me, being autistic, has always just been like. I just get hyper-focused on everything. So when I started working a lot less, I had a lot more free time. And for the last bunch of years, I've just been doing nonstop research every day on all of the topics that I'm sure later uh, you'll have introduced before the video uh, for everyone else listening. But um, just, you know, this wide range of stuff that I've been into was just because I had the time. And I ran across uh, some conspiracy stuff. And um, the more I researched, uh, you know, like... All of it seems outlandish at first when you are integrated into uh, this society of, um, you know, believing that everything is okay and teaching people that anything that happens bad is probably their own fault because we live in the land of the free and uh, obviously there's so much opportunity and if you're not getting it, it's your own fault. So I started reading some of this stuff and, and uh, you know, with the exception of lizard people and flat earth and some things that obvious, you know, basic science can clearly dispute. um, I started realizing that almost every single conspiracy that I looked into was absolutely true. And uh, so for a while I got like really quite depressed and my ex-wife was like, okay, you might be a little too deep in these conspiracies. conspiracies (laughs) I thought, well, 
you're not wrong uh, <laughs> because it's, it's disheartening when you look into things and you realize right. conflict of interests, which is now what I call them because conspiracy has been weaponized so that when you call something a conspiracy, that's a euphemism for obviously not true. Right. But all it means is that people are conspiring to accomplish something, you know, and maybe not telling people about it. So right. I use the word conflict of interest because, you know, it's a lot easier to understand that like at the biggest levels of government, when, you know, the head of the EPA is an ex coal guy, the head of pharmaceutical technology lobbyists is now in charge of that industry. And like the four biggest heads of, of, of their ex industries and lobbyists are now heading the industry. That is a, a massive and glaring conflict of interest. And to be so naive to believe that people in that kind of scenario are not going to use that power to benefit their own 401ks, their investment plans that they've already been building their whole lives right. and their friends and literally pushing around billions of dollars. Um, you know, to believe that they're going to vote against their own interests is, is rather naive. And so the more I looked into it, the more I just started reading the back of every research paper I found from any pharmaceutical technology paper. And I'd find those people and realize they're part of, you know, the Fraser Institute founded by the Koch brothers to obfuscate climate change technology or this or that or whatever. Right. So it was really depressing. Um, and so I, I took a break from that because uh, <laughs> my wife uh, basically told me to because it was too much. And I was like, you're totally right. And, uh, and it mm. was really, really hard to see the world getting better. And then I saw one article. The article that did it was an article that uh, studied what the effects of automating all of the cars on the road would do. And it turns out that if all of the cars were automated, it would uh, reduce the amount of cars on the road by 90%, which is ridiculous. Um, and even if it was half that, because stubborn people still want to drive their own cars, you know, just that alone is removing half of motor vehicles from the road just because they don't need to par park and waste space. That means more rooms for parks and less parking spots and less parking garages. And I just thought of the implications of this and I thought, wow, that that doesn't require lobbying or subsidies or that's just obvious progression and basic economics right. and that, that will be the progression of the world like 80 to 90 percent of the cars are just going to be off the road in like maybe 20 or 30 years because it'll just be easier to take an automated uber and so that really filled my heart with a lot of a lot of uh hope that uh i had lost for quite some time realizing how how many conflicts of interest are being capitalized on in this world. And, uh, and then I started seeing things about uh, indoor vertical farming. This is using 99.9% .9 less water, using very little electricity in carbon neutral buildings, um, growing plants in a sterile space where they get exactly, well, not necessarily sterile, but like without the need for pest control. So like people argue so much about Monsanto and whether or not they're doing any of the bad things that they are or not, it, it really doesn't matter because it will be unnecessary because these things will be grown in a place where they don't need any pesticides whatsoever. So we don't need to worry about, you know, the corruption of the organic farming industry also removing real organic farmers from the equation with their red tape, you know? And, and so that was like, wow, that's, that's going to save a lot of food and it can be done in cities, in skyscrapers, which means there's no logistics to deliver them everywhere. Just so much stuff. And, um, and I just kept reading about these 
technologies and the like insanely accelerated growth of the renewables industry and started looking into the numbers behind the oil and gas industry and realizing that the industry is already basically dead and being easily overshadowed by the growth of the renewables industry that creates more jobs, creates more wealth for actual people. And, you know, all of this propaganda is just the exit plan for that industry. And I started realizing that capitalistically speaking, the world is going to be saved by technology itself because, you know, Trump started saying all this stuff about reviving all these coal plants and then, you know, put in all these subsidies for coal plants. And then what happened was all of these states and cities were just like, yeah, we don't actually want to buy coal because solar is cheaper. <laughs> it's cheaper to build and run a solar plant than it is to just run an existing coal plant <laughs> at this point. So like <laughs> nobody's going to buy more expensive products regardless of your subsidies or what you want to you know, promote to the people to get yourself elected. And I was just like, wow, propaganda is failing because we are at the point technologically where these things are just going to become automatic and the world is just going to get better regardless of propaganda. And that really jump-started my view on saving the world with love. You know, instead of fighting against the evils, talk about them, make sure they're in the public sphere, make sure everybody knows what, you know, Me Too and toxic masculinity and oil and gas and all this stuff is doing, but talk about what we are doing to better that, how things are getting better and provide an end game for people that want to believe in a better world, but only see these evils. Cause it's really easy to see the world is a terrible place in the Twittosphere when everything just shows up on your feed. That is just this abhorrent view of humanity. But you have to remember that every atrocity you see online is a good thing because those things have always been happening. But when you see it, it's one more thing that hasn't been swept under the rug. And that's really important to, to remember. Right. Definitely. I definitely think that's the, um, the informational side of this whole uh, technology revolution is that it's, you know, enabling us to see all the things that um, we've been able to ignore before this. And like, so the Twitter sphere, like, it's just like people um, finally having a voice to, to talk back because before this, it has, it had only been the propaganda that they had completely had a monopoly over the narrative. And <clears throat> That monopoly is one of the things that always made me, um, I guess, uh, suspicious about a positive future because of how how expertly they've been able to manage the narrative, basically, and control what people, you know, see and about the world. And and so, but uh, what you're saying about uh, technology taking forward uh, a lot of these things that we've been making moralistic arguments for um, for all for the, all these hundreds of years of you know human rights activism but now now we can actually like actually make progress because it seems like there's a like a hard technological evolution that is taking place that you know um you know it's being furthered by individuals working on their individual crafts but it 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 seems like the like you said the the oil monopolies and the pharmaceutical monopolies and all these lobbyists like it seems like they are you know they're they're fighting a losing battle it seems like they're trying to like they're trying so hard right now because they know they're losing their control basically because of because of the way that like you said through the imminent ubiquity of 3d printing um will um obviate a lot of the monopolies that a lot of these companies have on overproducing things and then charging us exorbitant rates for it you know like the 
production costs are dropping on all those things. And that's a function of Moore's law and technological evolution. So that seems like that's, that's the biggest thing that's, I guess, working in the background to make some of this utopian ideation possible because we, we can see the bits and pieces of, of the new world coming to the fore. And we simultaneously have these, like the, the old world, you know, dying, dying away and like grasping to hold on to it's what it had. And the, the new world is uh, struggling to be born, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. I feel like th- things like utopian ideas are the, are the, like, I, to me, the part of the avenue for um, making that possible. But yeah, like that, that whole thing of the, the rabbit hole, um, I, I, you know, I call the, the whole, conspiracy research world the rabbit hole because it's like once you once you once you see that there's something going on behind the scenes you it's it's like it's it's a very alluring sort of thing that you're like like oh i didn't know about that like most people don't know about that like and you like research further and further and there's more and more it's like always more yeah exactly there's there's yeah exactly it's an endless um seems like a it's a but the reason people say that conspiracy theory is dangerous is because it, it I, don't, I don't know if it's because it um, is dangerous in terms of your mental health, but I've, I've heard a lot of people tell me that conspiracy theory is dangerous in, in this, like, oh, you shouldn't go down that, you know, like, you shouldn't go down that rabbit hole or whatever. And But well, I think it's an essential way to understand why some of these things are happening, like why, we're, why we've been at war for 20 years. As long as you're working on solutions and making sure that you're taking care of your mental health while you're researching these things as a personal level, at a personal level, rather, it's uh, not really dangerous. But the dangerous idea just came from when that word was weaponized um, in the Kennedy era assassination. And then people made it so that these conspiracy theorists are dangerous because they make people it's it's, it's just a populist idea to other them. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. I guess they, they, they had to come up with something to, um, uh, cause they've literally assassinated the president. <laughs> so, yeah. so they had to come up with some way to make it, um, taboo to discuss such a, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> there's power in words. Uh, right. you know, there are think tanks whose sole job it is to find specific, simple, spreadable words in order to other people to make them something not worth listening to. And that's, you know, conspiracy theories and snowflakes and these millennials. And these are, these are words created by think tanks to make people invalid. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, because it, it, I guess along the same lines of the fact that, you know, these old this old paradigm is propped up by the older generation of voters who is you know they they can be de- counted on to vote you know like all these mainstream yep. news networks their their average viewer is in their late 60s all of mm-hmm. them each network yep. 68 for CNN and 72 for Fox News. And in America, the, the, it just went down again. But the average age is only 78.6 years now. So like literally in an average of seven years, over half of the population of baby boomers who don't vote in their own best interests will literally be dead. And as morbid as that is, there is a ticking clock to bad ideas. Right. So like that gives yeah. me hope as much as I don't like to think of it that way. Cause I would rather these people die knowing that the world is going to be a beautiful place and not that it's going to be destroyed by millennials. But I mean, that's <laughs> just the reality. Right. <laughs> 
Yep, uh, I know. I I try to explain every time. I try to explain to old people that like we got this, but they you know they they don't uh, they're not buying it because they they're fundamentally stuck on the fact that the world can only be good if it operates according to such and such principles yeah. that we know to be obsolete, but mm-hmm. they you know grew up on because they didn't have the internet growing up and you know so they and they yeah. still barely got the hang of it you know. Uh, you go on the internet just read well, and even those generations were right after major wars too so like they're predominantly religious and a lot of them are super militarized also and these are right. two of the most authoritarian uh types of family homes you can have and when you grow up authoritarian you know especially religious you're taught to believe in imaginary concepts and not question them so you know, right. your whole world revolves around the government knowing what it's doing and just believing in it re- regardless of whether or not it feels right and being afraid of anything that tells you different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's those damn communists working behind the scenes. <laughs> Always the communists. <laughs> Fear the red. Fear the red. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like uh, that, I don't know if that might um, lead us into... Um, the our first topic that we might that we uh that we alluded to of of automation is because part of the reason that i think that this whole i mean in addition to the fact that the internet gives the millennials the like we said the the capacity to talk to each other and learn about each other's experiences on a deeper level than we had previously been able to we're also living amidst the technological I guess the end game of employment, like the, I feel like I, I always wonder how many millennials can, you know, see this automation wave that's coming, you know, and they, because, you know, millennials are having midlife or, you know, having quarter life crisis, crises. <laughs> yeah. And like in the literature, it, it, they describe, it's described exactly like a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Were, and, and the way I think about it is like that we can just see, we figure out sooner than our previous generations did that what, you know, the, um, I don't know if, uh, there's a analogous, uh, phenomenon in, in Canada to the American dream. Uh, but like this whole idea <laughs> of, much different. Of, right. Yeah. If you just work hard and, you know, you, you show up to work on time every day and you flip those burgers someday, someday you're going to manage that, that burger place, you know, mm. like, and, uh, and and then you could treat your employees like shit the way you got treated like shit. That's why you got extinct, you know. Like, because someday you'll be able to pass that down, you know, pass that abuse on to the next guy. And that's just how the world works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, but like, I wonder if they see that these jobs are like, you know, they're the days are numbered. Like, um, a lot of the careers that's it's almost like by the time if we get into these careers and you know 20 years down the road when theoretically in past paradigms we would have been able to you know move up move up that corporate ladder then you know but from this vantage point now 20 years from now those jobs are not going to exist anywhere a lot of those things are going to be fully automated there's not going to be a single job any there's a list online for percentage wise how likely in the next bunch of years your job is to be automated and like one of the last couple to go are like uh, mental health professionals like uh like 
counseling psychologists and uh, artists um, <laughs> and like Google's making art now. So that might even be wrong, but, uh, but like, you know, even like lawyers right now going through law school, if you start law school today, they're saying that by the time you get out of law school, there will be just online computer programs that do that job for you way better than you could ever accomplish. Right. So, People are going to school spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, if you're in America anyway, uh, for like these programs that are not going to actually get you a job. And like we have the most highly educated generation there ever has been working at Starbucks right. for the baby boomers. <laughs> so clearly no. educational systems have to change and we start to really need to work on social policies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And they, they insult us and call us entitled for not wanting to work at Starbucks <laughs> with our yeah. uh, fancy educations. <laughs> yeah, just, just trading jobs with each other, trading part-time jobs and multiple part-time jobs with each other to try and convince people that uh, the unemployment rate is low, but the full-time employment rate is incredibly low. There are just a bunch of crappy throwaway jobs to keep people somewhat busy and barely able to pay rent if that right exactly i know i just uh like trump for example is constantly touting how low the unemployment rate numbers are like oh like whenever whenever anybody calls him racist all all of his uh of his uh apologists and pundits yeah exactly um they all say like oh how could he possibly be racist because the african-american unemployment rate is the lowest it's ever been and i'm just like what kind of fucking jobs are you talking about like you're really gonna tell me that like that's a you know uh, a sign of benevolence that you know that there's this that they provided these terrible minimum wage jobs that pay dirt like yeah and a lot of these jobs just came from the fact that they instituted a healthcare system that was mandatory for employers to take care of if you worked over a certain hour so they just cut all jobs down to under 24 hours so that nobody could qualify so you've just taken all of the jobs and doubled the amount of them and then people have to get multiple and fight for them so sure it seems like the unemployment rate is high because people are generating unincome but it's certainly not enough to survive on right it's just yep. a just a skew of the numbers it's just just uh, one of the problems with statistics is that it can very easily be paint any picture you want it to if you're not careful to read between the lines right totally okay so uh, one of the <laughs> big questions that uh that i get a lot when i talk about automation is people people constantly bring up the industrial revolution and say mm. um you know everybody was saying this 150 years ago that you know the, the jobs are going to be automated and you know most people worked on farms and they're what is everybody you know what are people going to do and then you know we created this whole other sector and so people were retrained and and so i guess uh i guess maybe a good place to start on this topic of automation is just basically why it's different this time you know that why it's not going to just be part of the creative destruction cycle where you know jobs are lost and jobs are created and well uh, i would say it is and it isn't i mean for one the Luddites were right. A lot of them lost those jobs, but they got better jobs that were in the same field that were using the technology and their jobs just got easier. Um, today, um, automation is accelerating through every job sector and automation uh, is at a point where it doesn't need as much human intervention. And so, you know, we're going to get to the point where, of course, jobs are going to get easier again. Now, the problem is whether jobs are going to become more higher paid or whether there will be social programs that are in place to account for the massive job loss. Because these these are jobs now that computers and machines can do without human inter- intervention 
way better. And people are and have already been losing their jobs. So like when, again, touching back to Trump saying that the job loss or the unemployment rate rather is so low, you know, this is not taking into account that these are throwaway made up jobs just to keep people kind of busy and people are getting frustrated with this and nobody wants to work these things. And, you know, we're going to get to the point where the only inevitable obvious truth is to uh, create a system such as universal basic income that uses the tax of, you know, 70% on corporations and people that are making over, you know, certain amounts of millions of dollars a year to, you know, buy these robot technologies the automation has to be taxed in order to support the people whose job loss is caused by these things. And like, unlike the Luddites who are just going to be learning how to use machines that do the same job so they can produce more, which was all about producing more to give more to everyone. But now we live in a world where there's so much more for everyone already. We don't need to ramp up production. If anything, we need to cool it down or our, obviously our earth is going to be destroyed as everyone knows now <laughs> you'd be living under a rock if you didn't hear the 12 years left thing uh, right. so you know like it's 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 it is and it isn't different this time but like one way or another we're already at a point where there is not enough jobs or not enough hours of work to go around and more automation is going to lead to more of that and more of that has to lead to one thing or the other. It's either going to be a bloody revolution, which I really actually don't see happening or people just protesting being like, we need higher tax rates for giant corporations. We need to halt overseas shell companies hedging their money overseas to hide it from our economy. We need to stop bailing out banks and oil and gas companies. And we need to put that money into people and just give people money. Cause it's not about creating crappy jobs that make no sense. It's about, just feeding yourself really right right what matters. <laughs> exactly like, yeah not dying out in the cold is my preference personally <laughs> right so, yeah everybody says people need jobs but no they need incomes <laughs> exactly Big um, i just uh, saw a video yesterday actually that the, the hill just did a poll um because uh, uh, alexandria ocasio-cortez just uh she proposed she floated a 60 to 70 percent uh, mar mm -hmm. top marginal tax rate um, on MSNBC or something, uh, or no, CNN, and uh, and the and I think it was maybe Anderson Cooper who was like, "What?" Like he was like, <laughs> "Of course he was." Concept yeah. of, but so the Hill did a poll on it, and they 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 phrased the question. Um, would you support a top tax rate of 70%? They didn't even say a top marginal tax rate of 70%. And 59% of, of Americans su supported it. Like, mm -hmm. not even just a marginal tax rate. So it, it, it probably would have been higher, you know, had, probably would have had even more support. But like, so there is a popular mm -hmm. support for like the, these high top end, mar you know, progressive tax rates because people know that there's billionaires that are just running away with everything yeah absolutely <laughs> it's it's amazing that even worded like that that people i i was actually shocked when i saw the results of that poll because like a poll like that i would expect more than those numbers perhaps if they said you know four people making over a million dollars a year because then you know you're not in that bracket but the problem is american people have been brainwashed to believe that they're in a higher bracket than they are because right because it's those poor people and those immigrants that are doing all the bad stuff. So believing that you are part of this bracket that the, the people up top are saying is a problem is cognitive dissonance. So they avoid it, but they just flat out were like top tax bracket, more tax. And people were like, yes, obviously that's amazing. Really? 
I was really surprised. <laughs> no, me too. I, seriously. Because I, I, you know, I have a lot of conversations with libertarians. I feel like that's the main, like, interlocutors that I find myself, you know, dialoguing with. And they're all like, taxation is theft. Like, full uh, stop. <laughs> well, it, I mean... If you don't like yeah, having roads and stuff, I mean, sure, there are anarchist uh, and libertarian concepts to like building roads that work for getting to your places out of the goodness of your heart. But what they don't do is build roads in and around poor communities where the people who work for your corporations that you don't pay taxes on who then become essentially your slaves. Right. You know, like libertarian is just a right wing, white, privileged, slave wanting community. It's basically the South all over again, except for in California this time. <laughs> so, like, that's just asking for a civil war if libertarians have their way, in my opinion. But you have to do a lot more research into it because I don't really want to go there. Right. Well, but the thing is, we had that already. We tried exactly. it. Exactly. Like, there was slavery before there was a government here. Yeah. Like, when there was no government, people just had slaves. And when there was yeah. nobody to stop them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what happens? You got to have a government. I mean, personally, I would wish the government was like an AI, but, you know, we'll get there eventually. Right, exactly. That's that's definitely my ultimate vision is that, the, the, that like, or I think part of the lesson of the of the 20th century was that, like, that, that power does corrupt and... And so, and because, you know, humans are, we have all this evolutionary baggage from um, going back literally millions of years. We stood up four million years ago and, you know, we've been you know, like in a lot of brutal conditions ever since that. So there's a lot of leftover evolutionary stuff that we're still dealing with. And so I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the utopian ideas are the, are, are an attempt to basically correct for that, correct for the evolution correct for the adaptations we made to having to get by in a scarce situation and so i think a big part of our problems now is like not knowing how to function in this situation where we have so much where that you know like a what is it like a third of the global food supply spoils because people don't eat it <laughs> yeah, <shit. ridiculous. laughs> well people are starving like because because i don't have the money or the IMF like came through and pillaged their country and <laughs> yeah pretty much it's uh it's really interesting but uh humans have been studied very well to be altruistic by nature and there have been you know like it, where San Francisco sits right now there was like a uh, Native American uh city of a million people um and you know these are people that uh understand how to live in harmony with the earth and everything was fine until they got coughed on and died from the flu and of course all of the other atrocities that we all well know that uh the uh, that colonization caused um but you know now we have manufactured scarcity you know even just uh, the simplistic nature of calling it fossil fuels as if they are created and go by this mechanism that isn't how they're created and that they're going to run out. And this is just a manufactured scarcity that has caused them to be able to boost oil prices. And like these types of things are what is still driving populist uh, policy, this idea that there isn't enough work to go around, that immigrants are going to steal your jobs and we can't create more, and like that society growing is a bad thing for you and your family, 
And it creates this segregation based on believing that we don't have enough for each other when we are the most like expanded we have ever been. And we are by far the most luxurious and the most uh, rich um, like society in the human race has ever been. We have more stuff and wealth um, than and ever before. And it's ridiculous that, you know, millions of people around the world are homeless and starve when we have empty houses all over the world. And I mean, are currently also bombing houses and creating less houses, but that's another story. And really, it's all just to try and create this scarcity to keep people against each other. So you, there's some reason to control them, which we don't really need to get into because we're trying to move past that anyway. But uh, someone, some people somewhere are trying to make people turn against each other and it's still happening. And whether it's a result of, of power hungry people or religion and segregation or racism and all of those things combined is, is another thing, but it's happening and we've got to learn to overcome it if we're ever going to succeed in creating a beautiful world for everyone involved. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, the scarcity condition is definitely, I think that's the key that the, the, the thing that will be different about the future from the past, as I see it is the abundance scarcity thing. And so it's like, as the, as our technology continues to evolve and as the abundant co productive capacity of this technology continues to grow, it seems to me that it will be harder and harder to maintain that condition of artificial scarcity that this, that this system thrives on and needs and justifies its existence by, you know, purporting to manage. And it's like, you know, once we do have solar power, you know, solar power and we just have photovoltaic paint and just like every building could be a power plant and <clears throat> then we don't, we don't need to, you know, be funding a $700 billion military budget in order to extract the oil from some, some other country full of people who don't want us to steal it from them. And, yeah. and I think, and, and also the, and the, you mentioned 3D printing, like, I think that that's a big part of it too, is that another part of our wars are for mineral extraction. So I yeah. think once we get more and more and more precise 3d printing we'll be able to you know just fabricate a lot of these molecules that were you know you know destroying the earth to mine or you know mm -hmm. bombing poor people to take and propping up all these despots around the world like the i, I heard some stuff that the u.s backs like 70 percent of the dictators in the world like because oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they overthrew like, the governments previous to them right exactly exactly and the <laughs> reason that they did that was because they needed those, those minerals for the for us to have all these goods and services but it's like i think we're coming to this technological place where we'll that won't be necessary anymore and mm -hmm. I, that was the other thing i was going to say is um there's also a scarcity of time that is a, I think a big factor in the creation of these bullshit jobs is that they want to um, artificially keep our time scarce so we don't have time to like, think about the big picture of some of these things. And so I, I, it seems to me like UBI will, you know, at one level just give us more time because we won't have to sell as much of it because that's a big part of us. That's, that's what employment is, is selling your time because you don't have anything else to sell so, like a, so all, all we have is our time to sell to pay the rent then 
um, it seems like we will be able to get some of our own time back by UBI because we won't, you know, it will provide part of an income that we don't, didn't have to sell our time for. And it seems like a um, utopian prospect in and of itself because it'll allow us to do a lot of the research in general that you're talking about at the beginning of you know, like what exactly what exactly are we doing in general with civilization like what is civilization what is it for and like questions like that like you know you have to, you have to be academic you used to have to be an academic historian to think about questions like that and now you know just you and me you know just some uh, cyber anarchists hanging out can yep. figure all this can figure this shit out like <laughs> it's all available at our fingertips now you don't need to be afforded free time that other people don't get in order to just be into philosophy philosophy right. used to be a rich man's game now two people on the internet can look up anything they want and research it to the end of the earth and know all there is to know and form opinions and talk to people about them right yeah the collective consciousness is really that's what's going to change the world. It's uh, people like you and I talking on the internet and having other people come who disagree and arguing and getting more facts thrown in their, in their uh, wrenches into their gears with facts, you know, and, and whether or not they agree by the end of it, um, those concepts are now in their brain. And, you know, critical thinking is really hard to get through to right-wing people because of the fact that they have uh, shrunken um, anterior cingulate gyruses, um, and that's the area responsible for open-mindedness and critical thought and thinking outside the box and some forms of empathy, um, which is, is basically damaged by authoritarian uh, upbringing. And they also have a larger amygdala, which means they literally think more with fear. And amygdala shuts off many other higher brain functions because it's one of the fight-or-flight mechanisms. So when you're confronted with a concept that is different than what you know, they literally shut off half their brain, cannot understand what you're saying any longer, and knee-jerk reaction with fear. So having these conversations becomes rather impossible. However, they still happen, and they can come back to it and think about it later. And as long as we're willing to be patient and teach with love and not be like, no, you crazy right-wing psycho, that's going to destroy us all. You just have to be calm and cool and be like, I hear where you're coming from. Those are really scary things. These are the things that solve them. These are the reasons that they're not even actually valid concerns. These are the things we're working on. And as long as we talk about that, and like one of the, one of the points I made recently in just a post is that when you see something online that is some argument that you're having and there's this one person that's being terrible, you aren't having an argument with that person for that person. You're having an argument with that person for everyone else that's listening. Because if that person is saying something that is... Um, bad than marginal, marginalizing to a group or bigoted or whatever. You're not just like, oh, you're a bigot. You're never going to change. I'm not going to bother. It's about the people that are listening that see that someone is willing to take their side, that someone is willing to fight for what is right, even if they're not even being listened to by someone so that they feel like, wow, I don't feel I have the strength to support myself and stick up for myself because it's been so normalized that I be marginalized. But this other person is just doing it. Maybe it's not so normal that people make fun of, you know, whatever marginalized group you become a part of. So 
it really, you know, people say you can't change people on the internet. Well, I get messages every day from people being like, thank you so much for what you said. That means a lot to me in a private message because they just, they don't want to be known to talk about it, but now they're thinking about it. They know people are out there that think the same way. And this collective consciousness growth is the most important way that we're continuing to move forwards in my opinion. Right, right. Totally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've had so many conversations with people online that I just, I know that I'm not going to change their mind, but it still feels like it's worth the worth the exercise of articulating the reasoning um, for other people. I, I, you're exactly right that most people aren't trying to like engage in those fights and get insulted, you know, like, and so I, I think a big part of my um, one thing that I of when uh, I guess upside to having been bullied growing up and then growing into someone who you know is self-actualized now I feel like I can I feel like I have the strength to stand up to people who you know casually would casually demean people who they're just used to not you know having the strength to stand up for themselves or or something like that i remember the story of michael moore talking about why he became an activist uh, documentarian mm -hmm. there was like he he watched some he watched some guy get beat up and he didn't intervene and because he liked he didn't want to get he didn't want to also get beat up and then he's he says that after that he you know he said he would never let that happen again he's gonna you know he's gonna fight for people who are getting fucked by somebody stronger you know like and that's i think that's a big part of activism and you know trying to, and i think it's a big part of trying to improve the world in general like because it's it's easy enough to like just say oh the world's terrible i might as well just get on with it you know and you know it's just going to be terrible and it's not you know it's not it's not my responsibility to try cynicism to cynicism isn't helping anyone right exactly exactly um, yeah, it's a, it's a defeat. It's a defeatism. It's a, it's a, it's a sense of, oh, it's, you know, like, like one thing that one thing I, I, I correct people on a lot is people, when people say it's always been, when I describe like certain things about corruption and things about, power, you know, unfortunate aspects of power dynamics and, and dominator culture and stuff. And people say, but that's the way it's always been. And I'm, and I say, no, it's, it hasn't always been like that. There was a start to everything everything started at some point you know like and and then i you know i'm i'm uh fairly convinced that the that technology technological evolution ha has played an integral role in the entire process like so i think a lot of like empire kind of became possible with the with the beginning of the written word because they could codify like you do this and then you get this like and they could write down like who was a good soldier and you know they can expand this like you know what I, you know what i mean like and people mm -hmm. can get promoted and so the age of empire start started five thousand years ago which is around exactly the time of the written word and so i think that something so powerful that started this whole you know patriarchy and imperial uh, you know thing like i recognizing that it did have a starting point and even though it was so long ago like the the fact that it did have a starting point i think um, suggests that it could have an ending point or that, you know, there could be a transition. You know, Darwin said that the reason he, you know, the, the, that he was so stoked on evolution was because it implied that humanity was not an end point, but, a, you know, a stepping stone onto something, you know, greater in, in the future. And, you know, I can't even imagine how, what Darwin would think of transhumanism and the whole entire <laughs> concept of like literally conscientiously. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
you know, like, oh yeah, no, we've, we, we, dis we discovered the mechanism and we also discovered how to hack into it. <laughs> uh, so I, and I, I, I think that's a big part because honestly for me, um, that was what pulled me out of that conspiracy rabbit hole conspiracy research rabbit hole was discovering the singularity and transhumanism and this whole idea of because you know I, I remember alex jones talking about how you know i remember back in like it was like when i first started discovering conspiracy theory and alex jones is uh everywhere yeah exactly <laughs> and alex jones has a thing where he talks about how the the elite are like you know trying to transcend humanity and they're gonna you know they're gonna like just eliminate the rest of us and they're making us develop these technologies and they're going to take them for themselves and you know um, launch off the earth or whatever and so then but then i discovered transhumanism and the way that and the ac an actual discussion of it as you know just a natural thing that and it it makes sense to me that um christians would would try to paint it that way to make to make us not like the idea of transhumanism like they fearmonger hardcore about transhumanism and the whole entire idea of transcending biology and transcending our legacy um mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's one point there which i found rather compelling that i read an article about six or seven years ago um is that 85 percent of people who convert to religion uh later in life like as in not from childhood um, so in adulthood um, is because they begin to have a fear of death and the afterlife. So with transhumanism, I mean, the first thing with transhumanism is like upload or age reversal technology, the elimination of the uh, genetic disorder that we call aging. And so yeah. if we eliminate aging in the public eye and make that a possibility, you know, then 85% of people who converted to religion later in life will probably be like, you know what? <laughs> Screw that God. I'm not coming. Right. I'm, I'm not even going to bother. I don't care anymore. So, I mean, there's that, which is great. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because the whole entire justification of Christianity is the afterlife and the fear of death. And so if we're science has now progressed to the point where we might, where it might be able to cure that condition, then it, there, then it removes the entire justification for, as, as you said people starting to see their own mortality approaching like if that if that condition if we remove that condition then there will be no more reason for the like it it cuts out the church's recruitment um, mm -hmm. mechanism <laughs> absolutely it makes this the good part this life the good part see right. the problem that you'll find with the most cognitive dissonance when you try and fight against religion which i do often in as as nice of a way as I can, mostly because these people are brainwashed and it's not their fault. They live in fear for the most part. Despite that God is love, he will punish you for literally eternity if you fuck up and happen to not repent before you happen to die. So, I mean, nonsense on its head regardless, but uh, the one thing is that um, if you try and argue with them about the valid points and the contradictions of the religion, as soon as they find any sort of agreement with those contradictions now they've just got to come to the realization that they've wasted their entire life up to that point not really living for them right. but living for an imaginary being in the sky for the idea that the next life is the good part so the older they get the more you're making them realize they've wasted their life for something that now may not exist that is 
if I could think of anything that would be the scariest thing in the world, that would be it. So there lies the problem is that these, especially the older generation, really are going to have a tough time making them believe that everything they've worked for their whole life, being afraid of a being in the sky is for nothing. That's terrifying. Right. Yeah. That's why, you know, we can't tell our grandparents, you know, it's like so hard, it's so hard for all of us to tell our grandparents, like, Hey, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Cause you know, they, they, they know they're about to die and they're like, Oh, but it's okay. My family will then, you know, meet me yeah. up there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, so it's definitely, I'm, I feel very, very thankful that I was able to, you know, you know, go to a Catholic high school and have it shoved down my throat and have, and so to come to that realization that, 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 that was the case that, that everything that you just said, so I could, you know, live, live this life for itself, you know, like, like you said, and I think that's part of my, um, I think that's part of my rejection of, um, of employment and in general as a, as a thing to do with this life, because it's like, I think a lot, that's why Christianity and capitalism went so hand in hand because it was like, you know, yeah, yeah, this life sucks, but if you, you know, do it how we tell you to do it, then you'll be, you know, you, there's a party after you're dead. Like, and so, mm -hmm. but without that, it's like, wait, but, but there's so now I understand that there's, that there's not a party after I'm dead. So I want the party now, like right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, <fucking> now. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a big part of the, the beauty of, of, of festival culture. And it's all that, and, and all that, like the, the Renaissance going on, because it's like people who are, people are really grasping this life and trying to, you know, optimize how we live on this planet, like in actuality, like, rather than in a hypothetical potential, you know. Um, Hopes and dreams. Yeah, exactly. Big ice cream cone in the sky. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, these are, these are the biggest things, in my opinion, that just cause that inevitability in my mind for the world getting better is like automation is obvious. The only possible way that we will be able to sustain ourselves in a culture with automation without imploding under a bloody revolution is obviously universal basic income. And, mm. you know, with that on top of um, the ubiquity of 3D printing technology means that everyone will have control over everything that they produce, which means no more wasting a ton of fossil fuels, shipping stuff back and forth from China, no more using China to make all of our Western lives easier while blaming them for their pollution that is caused by our Western lifestyles. And, you know, like the, these types of things are just here now and coming and they're not going to be able to be stopped. And there's the paradigm shift there is going to be massive. Um, and like, there will be growing pains, <laughs> but right. ultimately these aren't things that can be stopped. And so like the younger generation can take note of the fact that this is just the obvious path and start fighting for them sooner. And once we start just talking about the obviousness of how easy it would be to support our society in a positive way, we can start moving in that direction a lot easier. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I feel like that's why we're, you know, clamoring to this, why politics is in such turmoil right now because we're just at the beginnings of grappling with this this major shift you know like uh so that's why you know it's like hillary clinton 
she missed her she missed her shot in 2008 and when she lost that she was you know it's like that was that was going to be the last one of those you know? <laughs> hopefully I'm, i like cross my fingers so hard that we don't get it some kind of hillary 2.0 and a lot of the mainstream at least especially the democratic party in, in america I, I assume there's um it's like this in every every western country is probably going to a similar similar dynamic right now is like do we do we reckon with the fact that there's major parad paradigmatic transformation that has to happen or do we like just keep postponing it and like just like keep ignoring people's cries for something different <laughs> but uh yeah and i i really wonder like when like do, do you have a projected time frame in mind when you think ubi will become uh at least a mainstream like uh piece of the debate you know debate or or like when it would when it will possibly be implemented someday uh. well i mean it's really hard to say because it kind of works in four-year increments with election mm -hmm. cycles right so i mean these are things the green party up here has been talking about um but you know the the rest are just not on board yet i mean the, mm -hmm. the liberal government just bailed out an oil and gas company just like the banks were bailed out by you guys in 2008 you know right. kinder morgan had a defunct pipeline they wanted to rebuild it and the 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 supreme court of canada said you can't do that because you're ruining all these indigenous lands and the shareholders of the company itself said mm, this is actually going to lose us money and it's not going to be worth it and we don't want anything to do with this pipeline so the lobbyists convinced the government of canada to buy the pipeline for $4.5 billion of taxpayer money, a pipeline that the shareholders of the company didn't even want and bailed them out of their infrastructure that they don't even and weren't even planning on using. So now the Canadian government owns a pipeline that people are still protesting not to build and like ripping indigenous people out of their homes to like try and build parts of this pipeline and like, you know... <laughs> It's, it's like wow when oil is going to be obsolete in five ten years yeah like i mean we're still going to be using oil for we're, we're still going to be using oil for quite some time but we do need to absolutely ramp down its production and create alternatives and like you know these these people are being brainwashed to believe that it's creating jobs when it's clearly been dead that industry's been dead for a while and any propaganda that suggests otherwise is part of the exit plan for them to sell all their oil infrastructure to taxpayers and people who and lower grade investors so that they can move all of their money divesting into renewables because these people who own oil and gas companies are not stupid i've seen the same numbers they see they know that their bottom line is failing they know there's a surplus of oil around the world gathering they know that it's just going to be built up so that they can move their money elsewhere so that's what they're doing and to believe otherwise is just unfortunately naive and it's based on very clever propaganda that is using you know that same scarcity of jobs that we talked about earlier against them when really renewable energy creates seven to one jobs against oil and gas anyway so you know like having hope for the future gets really really tough for a lot of people here in bc where we were just like no you can't run that pipeline through bc when people out of alberta some of my close friends who are super intelligent people who believe in the holographic universe and all this crazy utopian stuff are literally promoting separatism as if being a landlocked country, dead center of Canada, is somehow going to make you sell oil to the coast better. <laughs> it's just the 
the ignorance to state that being another country would be somehow better because you're crying that BC was like, no, we actually don't want you to destroy indigenous populations and have more oil spills like Kalamazoo and also potentially one oil spill in the Juan de Fruca Strait would permanently be the biggest ecological disaster since the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and it would be permanent. So like, <laughs> no is obviously right. the best answer. Fuck your imaginary oil and gas job. Please just think about something other than yourself for a second. And also, by the way, retraining is cheap. And if we use the same oil and gas subsidies to retrain into renewable energy, it would be obviously better for everyone. And like I'm seeing $1,000 programs going around for $1,000, you get a couple weeks training and you get ticketed to be able to install solar panels where you can go get a loan from the government to get money to buy solar panels and install them. People like people could just be creating their own businesses. It's, it's right. actually all the tools are actually out there, but the government isn't promoting them because the oil and gas industry. So like the timeline is difficult and I digress. The timeline to when these things is going to happen is very difficult to say, but like basically it's just going to be a tipping point of voting power of younger generation people that are like, no, I want to work in renewables. And also can we tax the hell out of these oil companies or just not subsidize them and move those subsidies into retraining programs so I can actually get new jobs for the new world. And as far as universal basic income, life's a little too easy in Canada for that to be a big thing right now. But like I know in the United States, despite this amazingly low unemployment rate, uh, life's hard. You know, there are straight ghettos. That's a real thing that exists. And like, it's been classified as a third world country now. Like, that, that's legit. The United States is literally a third world country. And it's one of the most technologically advanced and the richest country that has ever been in the history of mankind. And here we are. You know, still convincing people it's their fault they don't have jobs when there are surpluses of trillions of dollars just just going missing from the Pentagon alone that they don't know what happened to. Like, this could easily just be given to people. And it's so obvious. Exactly. And, like, (laughs) obvious things don't stay hidden for very long. So, like, I can't imagine it'll be more than a couple more elections. You know, maybe a Bernie, maybe a couple of Warrens, maybe some uh, AOC, you know, when Cortez, if she runs, she'll win. Right. And, like, because she's already got popularity yeah, I could see her doing basic income. She, she'll be age eligible in t- 2028. So I'm like, count down the days. We'll get over. Yeah, <laughs> because I'm, I'm like, because it seems like universal health healthcare. <laughs> just I was about to say that, and then I realized I'm talking to a Canadian. You probably think it's even more ridiculous than I do. <laughs> that we're still fighting for healthcare. It's pretty ridiculous. It's true. <laughs> like it's really funny when Americans make all these points about how the Ameri- or the Canadian healthcare system has failed and it's like what it's like I had <laughs> I had cancer when I was 28 and I didn't have to spend a dime you know people lose their life savings when they're like 60 when they get cancer you know that's your whole life gone because you got something that you couldn't prevent well maybe you could I mean I suppose you could have prevented it with lifestyle, but let's be realistic. You're not going to prevent it when the world is against you and you're living in a stressed environment your whole life, working to the bone because you've been taught that's the only way you're ever going to be deserving of anything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you've got a system works. that gives you disease because it's not preventative and it's the most expensive healthcare system in the world. And like, you know, like there's, there again is like this, this money, what is AOC 
what is her 70% tax bracket going to do? What's that extra 20% of tax from the ultra rich going to do? It's going to bring in like a trillion dollars. What can you do? <laughs> or trillions, in fact, probably. What can you yeah. do with trillions of dollars? Like, I think it's like $2.1 trillion to give every American uh, like $1,500 US a month to live off of. You know, yeah. there's that. Or like, it would definitely pay for, you know, any major surgeries and people need like, you know, one broken leg away from bankruptcy. That's right. appalling for a nation that considers itself civilized, you know, and it's really tough to see. I have lots of American friends that are all beautiful people and all of them are like, our country's fucked. <laughs> and like, that's just reality. Like, yeah, that's not nice. You know, like you can hate socialism all you want because you've been brainwashed to, but like social policies are just things like making sure children get educated well, making sure you're not one broken leg away from bankruptcy, making sure your grandparents are taken care of at the end of their life if they decided to be a starving artist and make the world more beautiful instead of working in oil and gas. You know, like these are nice things to do for people and to hate socialist policies and hate taxes is to hate being nice to other people and to believe that they don't deserve something because they have a different life than you. And that's goes against everything psychology would tell you about what creates different lives. And it's just, it's just not nice. And like, right. ultimately, <laughs> do we want to be nice people or not? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And with the productive capacity of all of our technology, we have the choice of whether to be nice or not now that we yeah. didn't have, that we might not necessarily have had in, you know, previous decades or centuries, you know, cause like the, the rich, like I'm sure they are able to pay for everything. So they, I pictured them going through life with, you know, just a constant stream of, you know, service employees smiling at them and you know doing everything for them because they have the money to pay for that and so they don't know what the rest of us experience as like this cold world that like <clears throat> could just so easily be overcome like if we i don't know if we just can figure out how to stop falling for this all the propaganda and i i think the the point that you said about the uh, that what did you say that life expectancy was like 78 or something? 78.6 right now. Right. So it's like uh, all, all those, all those Fox news viewers will, you know, they'll, they'll expire at about the time the uh, planet becomes un uninhabitable. <laughs> so, Basically. That 12 years out. So like, so it's like, to what extent can like, so I think that's the major project is like wrestling the power out of the hands of these the dying system that is literally being represented and upheld by people who are literally at the age of a dying generation. So it's like, mm -hmm. it does seem like there's a natural shift going on. And so it, it seems like, like, like Peter Joseph said a long time ago, uh, the ultimate question is how much worse does it have to get before it gets better? Mm -hmm. so, and uh, I, I think that that's why, that's why I want to do activism. And I'm sure that's why you want to do activism is to shorten that time period, you know, shorten that, you know, or lessen that, that answer of, of like how, how much worse it's going to need to get, you know, yeah. like, you know, you know, what's really interesting about that. And this is a, a point most people don't know, uh, is that it's actually getting better constantly every single year, 
January 1st, usually there is a why 2018 was the best year ever in the history of humanity, 2017, 2016, every year. And I've been reading these every single year and right. these massive changes that are going on in basic society, uh, like things aren't better for everyone all of the time. You know, like we still have indigenous populations up here that don't have clean running water. Flint still doesn't have running water ridiculous things so it's not for everyone and it's not all the time however major major issues worldwide are getting better every single year and everything on average every single year is the best year to have ever been alive in the human race and you know the most privileged among us therefore don't see a lot of these things and it's worth it to keep up the good fight because there are still people that aren't getting things that they deserve but you know we are winning this battle constantly you know People like us see some problems and want to solve them because we, because that's what good people do. But we have to understand that we are solving problems and we are winning and things are getting better one way or another. And it's true that the, uh, the morbidity of the dying generation taking this fear-based voting power away with them and leaving room for nicer people to make better decisions is an absolute truth. Uh, I mean, you know, the baby boomers were a lot less hurt, hurt than the silent generation who went through adulthood during the Great Depression and had to raise these kids and all of that stuff. But because of having parents like them, they grew up very authoritarian, but they had good lives. So they raised Generation X, and Generation X didn't really have to want for anything because their parents were great. So they had a better chance of making better decisions and being better educated than Generation X had generation or the millennials and the millennials had parents that were you know the youngest of the hippie generation and you know maybe some grandparents that they would roll their eyes at because they're so annoyingly religious and authoritarian but their parents are kind of cool and it's all right you know and and then generation y or z now is the the generation following the um us millennials and they will never have known a life where they couldn't access information on anything. These are kids that are going to know that God, Jesus, the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, whatever imaginary people, things, they're going to know those things didn't exist before their parents could even try to describe it to them. They're going to have alternate information on anything, Wikipedia pages, and incredibly layered and nuanced uh, memes, satirical memes and everything, they're going to grow up saturated, festooned with information of every kind. And while that's going to affect their brains in a very different way, and it's going to cause very different people, like make no mistake, it's going to be different. They are also going to be by far the most overwhelmingly educated generation there ever has been with far more computing power to take in vast swaths of information from a young age than even we were and definitely more than x and the baby boomers these are going to be kids that can't really be screwed with you're not going to be able to tell them something is real that isn't because they're going to be on google in five seconds figuring it out for themselves and that in and end of itself is is a world-changing idea these these the most critically thinking generation ever is is next and right. and the one before it the millennials like we're the most highly educated generation ever so far next to th what they will be and we are already overwhelmingly in favor of socialism um, and social policies that are good to people totally denouncing capitalism realizing that it's just a fascist joke and 
things we're into technology we're not afraid of things we think critically and there are those among us of course that take after their parents and still have uh, these different thoughts but they're in the overwhelming minority and it's really unstoppable at this point it's really easy to feel dejected and upset when you see these terrible things going on in the world and as we should because we need to solve them we need to do something about them but maintaining maintaining the mindset that there's a time limit to this evil that the younger generation really cares about people you know like that we are more in touch with our emotions than any any past generation has ever been um in general we're basically just scientifically speaking better at most things there are some things that you could objectively say that the baby boomers or generation x is better at because of like their commitment to work and this and that and maybe that's important in some scenarios but with a generation that's going to be out of work commitment to working really hard isn't really necessary commitment to being there for each other as a community is and if we just hold on to the concept that we are doing very well as a generation even though our generation is struggling very hard in the status quo we are working from within it to make things better. And people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are a blinding example of what that's going to look like as more people start to listen to people like her and go, oh my gosh, like we need to do better. And holding on to that, again, I'll finish this point this time, I swear, holding on to that is what's going to make us speak with more compassion as we sell these ideas to people that don't get it yet. It's what's going to make us be able to continue to fight the hard battles and show even, you know, like we shouldn't be punching Nazis. There have been some really beautiful biographies I've seen of people who used to be Nazis that now just go talk to Nazis and make them realize that they can have community and brotherhood and connection and love outside of that community and completely denounce Nazism. So no, we shouldn't be punching Nazis as much as I'm not going to deny that I totally imagine myself straight, like headbutting Nazis in the face sometimes when they say some stuff that just makes me infuriated, but I'm not going to, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to treat them with as much love as I would anybody else to the best that I can because what they say might just be too much for me, but I'm going to try because that's how you change the world. And we have to remember that we are winning, is getting better and hold on to that and let us let it guide us into every battle we have to face because that's where it's at. We can't believe that it's getting worse because it's not. We are winning. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I guess one question, uh, on on that subject of uh people talking about punching nazis because i that is that is one thing that i've like uh like struggled with a lot because a lot of the a lot of the leftists that i follow are very like um you know you're you're a bad faith liberal if you don't support that kind of thing and and i'm just always like well but no i'm not but i i just don't think that that was going to be effective at at converting any Nazis is to punch him in the face. Like I, for a leftist to punch him in the face, that just that's not going to convert anybody. And it seems like the, like I've heard multiple stories of people like talking about how they left the left because they, you know, were in some brawl and whatever at a pr protest and a counter protester hit them. And that's what turned them into a Nazi in the first place. Mm. It's like by accidentally getting hit by somebody. And so it seems like, Okay, so I guess my question, uh, my, maybe a question would be, do you think that 
people are falling into things like Nazism because of this scarcity that is being propped up and that the 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 that and that things like basic income would basically like remove a lot of the um I don't know the desperation that led to people becoming Nazis both in the 30s and after the first great depression like that's part of why like Hitler rose in the first place was because Germany Germany was decimated after World mm -hmm. War One, so like it seems like the economic the the material conditions of the working class is like part of what's pushing it in that direction. So it seems like the the mo the best thing that we can do is to you know fight for these universal programs that will, will materially benefit their lives, and so that then they can so they'll be able to see that you know like we care about them and we want them to do well just like we want ourselves to do well like um and our friends and neighbors and every we want everyone to be doing well like it's i feel like there's uh, a big part of uh that the a big part of the right wing is just people feeling like you said like they just they love that community and camaraderie that they have among their fellow um incels or whatever and mm -hmm. they um I don't know. I guess I just... Well, there's a lot to touch on there. Um, and, I mean, just even relating to the way that the people in the oil and gas industry in Alberta are turning to separatism to mm -hmm. feel that, you know, they're not getting what they want or deserve, so obviously they should just leave the country entirely. Mm -hmm. and it's that, that, is, that is a boiling down of this mentality at every level, you know, like a thief, the, the thief that stole my car stereo back in 2007, you know, I was annoyed because at the time I couldn't afford $3,000 for a new car stereo and that sucked. But I also have to understand that like this is a world where uh, we are taught we can have whatever we want and there are nice things out there. There are new computers and video games to play and new phones whatever you're into everybody has a different passion but whatever your passion is you don't have that you're not you just there's no way you could afford to have that in any reasonable amount of time do you then say i don't deserve it i'm not part of this society that deserves these things these commercials aren't for me am i not worthy and your response to that is going to be no fucking way i deserve those things too look at this decent looking car here with this really nice stereo they could obviously afford that so they can afford it again and i'm going to take it because i deserve one too and i honestly can't blame them for that i was upset for sure but i really can't blame them they don't think to think you know maybe i spent all of my time trying to afford that and finally made it there they just think i can obviously afford it and i just can't blame them and from every aspect of culture you know white fragility for instance is a is a big thing so we have this uh white male dominated culture in general and so what happens with nazi culture is white men are taught our whole lives that all the other cultures are oppressed and we have all this privilege and you know even now talking about this privilege we have it's hard to hear about privilege you know when i first discovered the concept i was like screw that i grew up like quite poor i've seen a gun to my mother's head i've been through the ropes and made everything i had on my own and did it myself and i have no privilege 
but you know, understanding more about white privilege, I realized, well, but if I was black, that would have been a hell of a lot worse for me, for sure. For Mm -hmm. sure. There's no denying that, you know, the things I've gotten away with, with police or whatever, I would have been marginalized and put somewhere where I didn't deserve because of the color of my skin. And that's a reality. So, you know, whether you've learned about privilege or not, it is pretty obvious that it's a white dominated culture. All the big movie stars mostly are white and they all live in these lavish, nice houses and they all are middle class, which is actually totally rich, but they consider these normal families and all of these TV shows and movies. And so to grow up, and to not have all of those things and to not get all of the girls and to not get all of the money and the cars and the jobs. Well, now what you've been told your whole life, you could just have anything you want if you just work for it. But now you've been working your whole life and you have nothing, you know, no girls, no car, no money, no house, nothing. And so this creates this massive problem uh, of uh, one very serious aspect of white fragility that causes these these incels, these thieves, these thugs and gangsters, and these these people who lash out be- and these Nazis because those immigrants obviously took that stuff from me. If you're a Nazi, right? Where's mine? Where's the stuff I was promised? I'm a white male. This is my country. That's how you get to be a Nazi. You get to be a thief because of what I what was aforementioned. You get to be an incel because where are all these girls? I'm trying to be a nice guy. I'm hitting on girls. You don't, you know, sure, they're too stupid to think, go on the internet and think about what do girls want? How do I be nice to girls? It's all about how do I get mine? Because they were promised all of these things through the media. So, you know, th- this is this is what creates this problem and and uh, I, can't, I can't remember, <laughs> that's a lot of talk and I've forgotten the original point of the question, but uh, you know, we're not going to heal society by um, telling all of these people that they're bad people because they've become a Nazi, they've become a thief, they've become a murderer, they've become a criminal, they've become a drug lord, they've become a, uh, or, you know, uh, an incel or, or, you know, become a banker you know, which is another kind of terrible thing. You're just trading invisible debt-based money and like you're not actually doing anything in the world. There's so many things that are things that people shouldn't be that they are and like telling them that they're bad people is completely counterproductive because Nazis are not bad people. They're people who have been horribly brainwashed by a society that told them they could have something they couldn't and then by people who got fucked by that mentality who take them under their wing and say, come to my brotherhood. We will treat you with respect. You will have things you will have a community, you know, this, this is not their fault. And so healing the world from these things absolutely is as simple. In my opinion, the best thing that's ever going to have happened to the human race is universal basic income. Because when you just give people money so that they can never worry about survival so that they can buy a new PS4 pro and play fun games with their friends so that they can feel like they are deserving of, basic human things that everybody else seems to get there's going to be and and studies have shown you know with less poverty and less fear of 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 being able to survive there is a massive reduction in mental illness there is a massive reduction in crime of of all types across the board violent and non-violent there is a massive reduction in drug addiction there is a massive reduction in religious thinking 
there is a massive reduction in basically everything bad. Oh and, oh, and an increase in education. Massive increase in education. So like, if we want to fix the world, we literally need to give poor people money. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> literally scientifically shown to be the best possible way to solve, you know, the, the these problems. And like, to be impossibly facile, you know, how do you get homeless people off the streets? Give them homes. We literally have all of these empty homes in America and more empty homes in America. I think like seven times or four times more empty homes in America than we do homeless people. Mm-hmm. And like, that's full homes. Never mind like rooms in homes because like homeless people need friends too. They could be roommates. Like you could hook them up with social workers. Like there's, there's just so many things that are so simplistic. And it's like, how do we solve people not having any money? Well, since we have all this money, maybe we should just give them some. It's as simple as that. And it's, you know, it's only the American dream and the idea that those people don't deserve it because I worked hard my whole life to get everything I have and I'm not privileged. So why should they be privileged? And that mentality that will thankfully die with the baby boomers that is preventing us from voting to just be nice people. As simple as that. Right. Totally. Yeah. That's a uh, that's big part of how I conceptualize utopia is like just, like circumstances in which we are we will naturally be good to each other like the, i think that's mm-hmm. a um big part of it um you know, post-scarcity luxury communism that's that's my dream one day uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly yep uh, so we don't have to put a number on you know somebody's worth or whatever because mm-hmm. it's enough for everyone so whatever more than enough right exactly so yeah anyways uh yeah that uh, makes a lot of sense on uh, how we can you know correct some of these problems that are are, you know seemingly overwhelming and seem to seem to be so totalizing and you know debilitating for our progress as a civilization and um seems like uh we've covered some ground on you know the types of policies and the types of trends that are you know where this where this world is headed and some of the reasons to be optimistic about the the way things are headed things are getting better every year and you know on the whole and uh, you know we uh we're just finding out about a lot of the things that have been problems all along and uh, finally figuring out how to solve them because now that we now we you know know that they're problems and we know that we got work to do and it's not and our problems are no longer just overcoming scarcity because now we've you know largely you know solved a lot of that problem and we're you know now onto a different problem of how do we you know use that new abundance to treat each other well and you know to like create a society that rewards sociality instead of anti-sociality and so, yeah, uh, thank you, Scott, for uh, joining us. Uh, oh, it's an absolute a- pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really stoked on this new podcast, and I can't wait to see a lot more of it. Cool. Thanks, man. Oh, yeah. All righty. Well, uh, peace out, everybody. Uh, uh, tune in next time. <laughs> the basis of peace is not
possible without the ceasing of racism, poverty, inequality, and ignorance. And ignorance is not bliss, it is belligerence. Bliss is a goddess, she is my kindred, my divine sister. Poverty is not what many thought of, as simply a problem across borders and continents. Many walk in the dark, modern my thoughts that harm them, like corporate societies, bias, karma. Yet not all politicians are lying monsters. Let's try to find the positive and conscious problem solvers and support them so we can all evolve, support the streets and decriminalize peaceful deeds, offer assistance to those weak and lost. We should teach courses on healing with leaves in Florida to teens that are caught up in awful scenes, gender equality classes instead of oppressive and awkward mainstream Catholic, Christian and Islamic tactics to label the fact that they're all afraid of difference. But if we're calm and we stay persistent, we'll always make a difference like chaos said it. The great shift in progress is inevitable, it is destined. Talk and pray if you wish, but also actually act. Make haste, break bondage, and taste the flavors of your gifts. So many raped maidens robbed of their wits, left crazed and neglected by patriarchy's ways, and the dominance and hegemonic confidence of demonic conquerors, like those that killed and pillaged that we show to children as the building blocks of their education when they're really villains. Illness begotten from death and hatred, yet it is possible to heal this. Action projects will truthfully collapse the problem and rebuild with the rocks of ancestral nations. We do not need more concrete solutions. We need more dreamers and seers to complete the blueprint. Speak to and treat street teens and students like teachers too, because they duly are. We can all evolve from their youthful thoughts. Who'd have thought they could school us with beautiful art? None of us are truly apart from each other, and youth are the heart of peace and progress. We need to stop feeding them pharmaceutical drugs and soothe them with love. The truth is such of what I'm leaking is, peace is a state of mind. I speak it displayed in rhymes, but the secret is to stay aligned with both polar oppositions. Walk the middle, unlock the riddles. Too many cold and nauseous kindred, the little goddesses and mark the brittle. We know and talk of corrupt cops in the system, but too little own up to walk their talk and author their visions. Awkward predicament, misogynistic god complex syndrome. Me, I'm androgynous, and I walk with a lot of oddity misfits. Beyond robbing the rich like Robin did, why not? Get them to sponsor the end of poverty And offer all the kids their subconscious gifts Self-prophecy is destiny We're all blessed entities And progress is infinite Change is the only constant So be the change you want Rather than the chains and change you flaunt There's a lot of strange angels and dark ones We do not hearken to or acknowledge You don't have to have academic knowledge to have heart This is just a crafted tablet of art But it can be a cracked match in the dark That sparks a fire massive on a barclay pyre to stop the madness and the heartless from triumph be wiser than their thoughts darkness is not vile it is cosmic we are all empty subatomic particles we are all oneness like the sun's molecules so shine in the glumness and walk with confidence peace cannot be avoided or conquered we are not voiceless we are voices in the dark that are the brightness in the heart of the night till we evolve into light Till we evolve into light. Yeah, we're we're winning this battle one way or another. It is happening. Mm-hmm. We'll get to the future somehow. Yeah, one way or another, it's coming. <laughs>